Thank you for leading us in worship. Uh, kids, you can head off to Kids Zone at this time. Junior Church? No, not Junior Church. Just Kids Zone. Well, as they're going, uh, let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of music. Lord, not just uh, singing about things that we wish were true, but Lord, singing about things that are fundamentally true. Real things. Real truths, Lord. The battle does belong to you. Lord, we confess that so often we think it is all up to us. Lord, we live in a world where it teaches us about self-help and self-reliance and, and that the truth is all within us. And Lord, the truth is only within us when you are within us, giving us the truth, giving us wisdom, Lord, giving us strength. Lord, um, sometimes you call us just to, to be still and to know that you are God. And Lord, at other times as well, you call us to step out in faith, Lord, trusting that you are the one who has gone ahead to prepare the way, who is able to turn around situation, relationship, challenges, Lord, when we rely on you, and instead of white-knuckling it, Lord, thinking that it's all up to us. Lord, as we come to your word today, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher. Lord, you are the one who is able to speak to our hearts and minds. And so, Lord, open up your word to us. Open up our hearts to you and our minds. Lord, that we might meet you, that we might learn from you. Lord, that we might be changed by you. Amen. Uh, a missionary was working among children in the Middle East, and she was driving her Jeep down a road when she ran out of gas uh, a couple of kilometers from the nearest gas station. So she looked through her Jeep, hoping to find a gas can or any container when she couldn't find that, and all she had was a bedpan. Well, since that was the only container, she took that with her, and she walked down the road to the nearest gas station put some gas in it, and, and walked back. And as she was pouring the gas into the Jeep, uh, a large Cadillac drove by, driven by a wealthy sheik. And, uh, and he drove up with his friend, and they were absolutely fascinated at seeing her pouring the contents of that bedpan into the Jeep's gas tank. And uh, one of them couldn't help but open up the window, and, uh, and he said... Although my friend and I do not share your religion, we greatly admire your faith. <laughs> well, some people think that uh, Christianity runs on that kind of faith, wishful thinking, the kind of faith that would be needed to expect a car to run on the usual contents of a bedpan. There is indeed faith required to live the Christian life, but not the kind of blind faith that the sheik and his friend thought they saw. But the kind of faith rooted in the character 
and track record and reliability of God. The Bible, of course, tells us in no uncertain terms that it is impossible to please God without faith. Why? Because it is our actions, our steps of faith or lack of them that prove whether or not we really trust him. Take my keys, for example. If uh, those of you who are parents know that when your kids get their license and then they ask you to drive your car, you know, they are asking you to take a step of faith. Amen? Mm-hmm. And I can guarantee you that if you say, oh, you know, I trust you, but we aren't willing to hand over the keys, it's meaningless, right? They won't believe us, nor should they. We often think that we trust God until we find ourselves in a situation far more difficult and desperate than we ever thought that we'd find ourselves in. And we cry out for God to save us, maybe from a a pit of despair, from overwhelming anxiety, from bankruptcy, from a deadly illness. But when he doesn't rescue us, how or when we expect, we begin to question whether he even hears or cares about us at all. In the wilderness, Israel found themselves facing hardships they thought their loving God would never allow them to get into. After all, they had been following their GPS, their God's pillar in the sky, right? By day and by night. Ever since they had left Egypt, and rather than taking them on the shortest direct route to the promised land, he had led them out into the wilderness, taking them to God knows where, or at least that's what they had believed until the water ran out and the tempers flared. We pick up the story today in Exodus chapter 17. I invite you to turn there. Let's read Exodus chapter 17. Now the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah, which means testing place, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. 
Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek. From under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because because hands were lifted up against the throne of God, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Since Israel left Egypt, they have been traveling, it says, from place to place. Of the many places that Israel camped, and Numbers 33 gives the whole list of them if you want to know, their stay at Rephidim is told in detail because of the importance of what took place here. This chapter features two stories from Rephidim, an example of faithlessness and an example of faithfulness. While the specific location of Rephidim is unknown, what is clear is that it is close to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, which means they are almost at the place where God had first appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Remember that? And God had promised Moses on that occasion, he'd given him a sign, you know, that this was really going to take place. He said, one day you and the Israelites will freely worship me here on this mountain. And that promise is almost fulfilled. They're very close. And it's almost about to blow up in their faces. You see, the people are complaining bitterly, wondering and grumbling about who is crazy enough or cruel enough to have them camp at a place with no water. Moses, the leader, is their obvious target. But since they have been following, right, the pillar... Their complaint is ultimately against God, as Moses tells them. In this case, the people are doing more than complaining. Most translations says they quarreled. That's stronger. But the Hebrew word reeve is often a legal term for a lawsuit. We would say they were bringing charges, leveling charges against him. And the people appear to be taking Moses to court, whether formally or informally, so to speak, accusing him of trying to kill them by leading them to this God-forsaken place. And the forcefulness of their accusation and anger can be seen in what Moses says when he cries out to the Lord in verse 4. They are almost ready to stone me. It's probably, if those charges upheld, that will be the sentence that they will execute. They have yet to learn that God's leading does not always move directly from oasis to oasis to oasis. 
That's the way it is in life. And with interpersonal relationships, hardships are opportunities to grow better or bitter, to bring us closer or to break us apart. For Israel and Moses, things have become very tense and hostile. Moses is backed into a corner with apparently no way out of this one. A resolution is needed. But the situation is complicated by the fact that the judge, God, and his representative, earthly judge Moses, are the ones being charged. The people don't trust God and are trying to get him to do what they want. If you really loved us, you would never have let this happen to us. That's basically what they're saying. God, if you're real, you wouldn't let bad things happen to good people. Now, in danger of being stoned by the people, Moses cries out to God. That's why that word cry out, it's a desperate word, Zaak. And in response, the Lord gathers all of the parties in this dispute to a meeting. That is, Moses is to go in front of the people. Now think, they're ready to stone him. I'd be wondering, in front of the people? Okay. And uh, take with you some of the elders of Israel. Those are probably the ones that would be having the stones, ready to throw the first stones. And Moses is also told, though, to take in his hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. That is an interesting way of referring to what is otherwise called the staff or the staff of God. Remember what happened when he struck the Nile with that staff? Judgment. Blood. A lot of blood, right? And they have been bloody angry at Moses and threatening to pronounce and execute the death sentence against him. What kind of judgment is the staff of God going to be used for today and against whom? There's some high drama here. And the Lord will stand there, he said. That is, he's going to be present before Moses. Probably Moses is the only one seeing him or knowing this. And stand by the rock at Horeb, at Sinai, the mountain of God. The congregation of Israel has been leading them. The congregation of Israel has been questioning whether the Lord is really among them. And whether Moses has been leading them, we would say, on a wild goose chase. That is useless, an aimless journey. So with all the parties now gathered, Moses is to use the staff to strike. But once again, like in the previous chapter, chapter 16, the Lord's response to these hostile complainers is unexpected and grace-filled. Don't strike the people, but strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink it's a gift of amazing grace and I think a parable like sign of what they are about to experience at Mount Sinai where they will be given tablets of stone of rock with life-giving words on them the gift of God's covenant promises and his pattern and laws for human flourishing. Rather than charging them 
And rather than judging them for charging him with evil intent, God extends grace and life, and he does it in the sight of all the elders of the people. They're eyewitnesses of this, beneficiaries yet once again of God's amazing grace. And they're in the Lord's presence, and they see the Lord's presence and power to provide in ways they have never experienced before, ways that they would have said impossible. God is showing them a whole variety of how he can provide. His restorative power when they came across the bitter water the first time in end of chapter 15, and he healed it, right? There was water, but now it couldn't drink it. Now they could drink it. He showed them his creation-like power to produce manna in the wilderness in this barren place, and now water from a rock. Amazing. Well, the dangers of life in the wilderness include not only a lack of food and water, but also a threat from roving warlike tribes like the Amalekites. Uh, In a later summary of this attack in, in Deuteronomy 25, Moses will add that it was when you were weary and worn out, they met you on the journey and attacked you and attacked all who were lagging behind. There was no fear of God. No minimal standard of decency. This is barbaric. One can imagine the chaos and terror among the Israelites when it happened. And the fear that more raids would be taken against them. Just like Pharaoh had, right? When they'd come out of Egypt and there he and his army are bearing down on them. And in response, Moses orders Joshua to choose some of, the, some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. And, and when he goes, while Moses, while he goes to the top of the hill with a staff of God in his hands, Joshua's military leadership and uh, career will become famous in later years. The book by his name, The Great Conquest of the Promised Land, 40 years later. And his abilities on the battlefield. But here, he's a rookie. What becomes clear as the story unfolds is that their victory does not depend on Joshua and his men's military skill and abilities on the battlefield. Oh, that is important to be sure. He does what he is told to do, his part in it. He and his men, it says, went and fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. That took faith. (laughs) That took courage. While Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As spectators? Well, what quickly becomes clear that actually what Moses is doing on the top of the hill is directly influencing whether the Israelites were winning or losing on the, ba- on the battlefield. Which is why, if you notice, the battle in the valley is described very briefly, and the events on the hill are described much more fully. As long as Moses held up his hands, Israel had the upper hand, pun intended. But when he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Now, this did not go unnoticed. And so when Moses' hands grew tired, Aaron and her, huh, let's get him a stone to sit on. 
right? And then they held up his hands so that his hands remained steady, steadfast, firm until sunset. And the result? A great victory. So what exactly was Moses doing that so clearly influenced the outcome? Many people have assumed that Moses was praying. After all, we pray in our Western culture like this, eyes closed, head bowed, hands folded. Jewish people pray like this, looking up to heaven, open to God. So he may well have been praying, but the text doesn't say so. Whereas it does back in chapter 9, verse 21, or 29, verse 29, on that occasion where Moses is going out and praying and holding up. But what it does say is how clearly the battle was decided by the raising or the lowering of the hands. Whether, Whether it was his power holding them up or somebody else's power holding his hands up. It seems magical to some. The way the, you know... The raised or lowered staff had such a direct, visible impact. Others see it as inspirational. You know, his lifted hands with that staff of God in his hand encouraged the warriors below to to give their all in the battle. And if Moses slacked off, so did they. Now, I do think that the sight of Moses with the raised hand, with the staff of God in his hand, certainly would have been inspiring to them, given all that they had seen him do with that staff of God in his hand, right? All of those plagues in Egypt, all of the gods of Egypt had been defeated. And most recently, they had seen Moses holding out that staff stretched out, and while he did, the Red Sea had parted. After all, Given the human divine cooperation God calls for on this occasion and previous time, versus previous times. See, before they just had to stand still when they were fighting that first battle with the Egyptians bearing down on them. But this time, God is saying, no, you need to be participating in this. It's, it's vitally important what the warriors on the ground feel about God's involvement That's vitally important, especially in the first battle that they have ever had to fight in the trenches, so to speak. Now, the staff does not magically radiate power. But it is a very real sign and symbol of God's powerful presence. And it mediates through his servant Moses. As Terence Fretheim notes in his commentary... It assures them not only of God's active hand in the battle, but of Moses' confidence that God is so involved in this. God's activity is such that though divine will in the matter is clear, it is not accomplished by a divine snap of the finger. Moreover, if we follow the story, it will actually take generations for God's goals, that is the elimination of the Amalekites, to be accomplished. And it will require Israel's participation. We need to keep in mind that Amalek here is what uh, Fretheim calls an embodiment of evil. He is Pharaoh revisited. He is barbaric. If there was any sense of moral decency, he wouldn't have taken on all the vulnerable at the weakest place. 
And this is also not only a physical, it is a spiritual battle taking place. They are dependent on God's, on God's presence and his power. Reminded of what Paul will say in Ephesians, our, our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood only, but against the powers of darkness in this world. And he says that we need to put on the full armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and he goes on. And he says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. So it is prayer, but it is, it is more than that. And it is leaning on the powerful presence and strength of God. And this incident in the wilderness was something long remembered it's memorialized. It's, it's written down so that Josh, Joshua never forgets this. This is the paradigm, the pattern he will need to remember with every battle that he goes on to. The battle is the Lord's. You are ultimately dependent on whether you're him, on whether your army is smaller than all the others, or whether it is greater than all the others. The principle is the same. The battle belongs to the Lord. And they are to memorialize it with an altar. Moses does it with an altar called, The Lord is my banner. You see, the Amalekites had shamefully and brutally attacked the Israelites when they were at a point of supreme vulnerability. Satan does that, doesn't he? And when Israel's future was hanging in the balance, the Lord was their banner or rallying signal is another way of interpreting it. I like to think of it, uh, those of you who are Batman fans at all, uh, you know, the Batman signal, Gotham, the people of Gotham are in trouble, right? And they send out the banner, the signal for Batman to come and to, and to save the day. In this case, that signal, you know, that's going out the banner, it's the Lord. And this banner, you know, also calls for Israel's participation, not mere observation. Well, I want you to take a moment and think about what's the lesson that God is teaching you through either of these stories? What's a lesson that God is teaching you through either of these stories? In our, in our Thursday Bible study group, uh, it's, it's great. We're having some great studies and sharing together. It's got a great international flavor. I come away from there blessed by the things that I am learning, uh, that we are learning together from the scriptures and from one another. And, and one of the people said, God, don't let me miss the lesson that you have for me, the learning in the wilderness. And so just take a moment first to think, is there a lesson if you could encapsulate that? And, uh, and then I want you to just take a moment to share that with a person or two next to you. So do that in groups of two or three. Can you do that? Can you do that? Okay, think about it.
give you one, give you half a minute yet if you need it. You know, I, I had, I have two lessons that I've jotted down, but I just wanted you to know this is not nearly exhaustive, and if I had actually gone around and talked to more of you, I probably would have had maybe a dozen lessons up here. But we'll, uh, we'll start with mine, and you can add yours along the way. I thought one of the lessons for me that God is so worthy of our trust. God is so worthy for, of our trust. He tests us for our good, he teaches us in concrete ways, personally and collectively, that he can be counted on in any and every situation, including and especially in the wilderness, the desert times, and places of our lives. I love what one writer said, God cares for us a lot more than we give him credit for. <laughs> I thought, that's a good, that's a good lesson. God cares for us a lot more than we tend to give him credit for. Not simply by helping us to avoid hard times, but often by being with us through it, providing with, for us through it. I love the, the hymn, around it all, around it all, I learned to trust in Jesus. Oh no, through it all, that's what it is, right? <laughs> and we're praying, around it all, around it all, Lord, please. No, it's through it all I learned to trust in Jesus. Um, I'm going to, if you stay for our annual budget meeting today, I'm going to show you about a three-minute story from Shalom Farm, it's called, in Thailand. That is a story of how God provided, and God provides. But you'll have to come to the meeting to see that one. Uh, another lesson is God is with us in the battle. God is with us in the battle. They felt he can feel abandoned, but he does not abandon us. Sometimes he fights our battles for us, but often he calls us to action. Whether that action is praying, it's also saying, no, I actually want you to speak up with your neighbors. You've been praying, Lord, please bring my neighbors to faith. And he's saying, well, are you actually taking a step about that at all? Okay. Have you done anything about the challenge at, in the workplace or in the school? I wonder what difference it would make if when we're facing opposition for our faith, that we could see Jesus' outstretched hands and hear him interceding for us. I've got you. I've got you. No, you know, you keep going. Or if we could see our brothers and sisters cheering us on. Hebrews chapter 12 said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you know, and he's talking about those believers here and, and who have gone before us, cheering us on in the arena where they were feeling in that day, they were feeling like so alone. So alone, so small, they were now being persecuted not only by the pagans, they were being persecuted by, the, by the, their fellow Jews, for those people, and in, to the Hebrews. And you need to know this great cloud of witnesses cheering you on. 
What difference would it make? I think it would make all the difference in the world. Any other lessons that you had? I know you didn't know this was going to be a test, right? Just gave you an opportunity if anyone has. Yeah, so the, the lesson of the importance of yielding to God rather than resisting him. Otherwise, it gets really long <laughs> when we resist. Anyone else? Yes? Remember what he's done Remember what I've done for you in the past, God says to us. You ever have those moments where God's like, remember? I often say it when I get hysterical, when I'm getting hysterical, God tells me, get historical. Remember what I did in the past. Remember what I did. Very important lesson. There are more, and uh, I just uh, I pray that God gave you the lesson that you needed. He gave me the lesson I needed this week. Let's pray, and as we're praying, uh, Lisa will come, and, uh, and then she will lead us in, in communion. Oh, Ariel. Sorry, Ariel. Wrong person. Yep, got it. <laughs> uh, dear Lord, we thank you that you are a great teacher, but you are a mentor because you are the one who is with us in the trenches of life. Lord, you don't just point, go and do that and dispatch us to go out and do it, something on our own. In fact, often, so often, you, you are the one who leads the way and you're just inviting us to follow you into a conversation that we need to have, into a step of faith that we need to take. Lord, Lord, may we trust and obey you and may we see you do things in our lives and the lives of those around us, Lord, that are so great that we want to build a monument so that we never forget them. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nathan and worship team, leading us into God's presence and praise. Just a reminder, if you'd like to join us for uh, our annual budget meeting, it is open to, uh, to everyone, and you are allowed to, you can stay afterwards. If you brought your lunch, great, you can go get that and bring it back. You can grab a cup of coffee. And uh, if you'd like to give towards the Elder Care Fund, again, you can do that. We have the offering box right behind the last pew there. You can uh, drop it off on your way out. And if you would like prayer, we'll have some uh, people available from our prayer team. Uh, Travis will be available uh, this morning to, to pray with you. It can be a praise item. We had some of those in our morning 9.30 prayer meeting this morning. And also some, uh, some prayer items. He is Lord of all. Amen? Amen. Let us go and serve the Lord.